0: I should like to call your attention this evening to that portion of Scripture which we read in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 7, beginning, you remember, at verse 25. I'm not going to read the entire portion again from verse 25 to verse 36, but let me just read the first portion. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is. But when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. Now those who attend here regularly Sunday evenings will know that we've been considering this seventh chapter of this gospel according to St. John for a number of weeks. And we are doing so because it is such a perfect and at the same time terrifying picture of unbelief. Here we have been shown from the very beginning the reaction of various men and women to our blessed Lord and Savior. We've seen his own brother's and their reaction to him. We have seen the reaction of the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem to him. We have seen the reaction of some of the common people. And now we are looking again at the reaction of some of the common people of Jerusalem. Clearly the others must have come from somewhere else. But here we are told in particular that these people uh, belong to Jerusalem because they seem to know something about this plot on the part of the authorities to put our Lord to death, then said some of them of Jerusalem. And again we are given a picture of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the thing that is almost incredible is to notice the reaction of all these various people to him. Is there anything, I wonder, that is more tragic than this? then that men and women should react to the Son of God and the Savior of the world in the way that is described here. You notice their sarcasm, you notice their bitterness, their cleverness. Is there, I ask, anything that is so tragic in the whole history of the human race as the fact that when the Son of God came here on earth, he was treated in this way and in this manner. But there, you see, we are just given a picture of what unbelief really is and what unbelief really does to a man. And that is why I'm calling your attention to it. In other words, as we go like this uh, through this uh, seventh chapter of John's Gospel and look at item after item, in this sad and sorry story of this reaction of people to him, what we are really doing is we are looking on at an objective picture of unbelief. Now, there's a great advantage in doing that. What is always so difficult, of course, is for us to realize the truth about ourselves. We can always see truth much more clearly when we're looking on at it, when we see it in a picture or in some other person. And that is what we're doing by considering this record. I'm employing the method that uh, the prophet Nathan, you remember, employed with King David. David had been guilty of a very terrible sin. You remember that sin in connection with Uriah the Hittite, to gratify his own lust and passion He had murdered a man in order that he might have his wife, with whom he'd already committed adultery. And David had done all this and was perfectly happy. But God sent Nathan the prophet to him. And the method, you remember, that Nathan adopted was this. He didn't immediately confront David with his sin. No, no. He had a much better method and a more subtle method than that. He, first of all, told David a story. Quite a simple little agricultural story of how one farmer had treated another, of how a man who had much possessions had taken the only sheep, as it were, of another poor man. And as David listened to the story, he was filled with a sense of indignation and wrath. He said, where is that man? I must punish him. A man, he says, who does a thing like that, he says, is a cad. He denounced him violently. And after he had done so, the prophet looked at him and said, Thou art the man. You see, we can see these things when we look on at them in somebody else. Very difficult to see it in ourselves, isn't it? Now, there can be no doubt at all but that these records have been written. God commanded these men to write them. The Holy Spirit guided them. And the church has preserved them again under the guidance and the leading and inspiration of the Spirit, for one reason only. And that is that we might have these objective pictures. Has it ever occurred to you why we have all these records of the wranglings of these Jews and these people and these authorities? You may say to yourself, well, why Why should I be bothered with all this? What's it for? What's the value of it? Haven't you sometimes felt that? when you've been reading your Bible privately to yourself, you say, what's the relevance of all this to me? And you see, the answer is this. You and I, by nature, are these Jews. You and I, by nature, are these Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and these people of Jerusalem and these people who'd come up to Jerusalem to the feast. These are but uh, pictures and representations of ourselves. And we should thank God for these records. All these details. You notice how in this particular instance, the whole thing, in a sense, seems to be just a repetition, and yet it isn't mere repetition. There's always something fresh. There's always something new. Why all this, well, I say, because it's God's love toward us. God, as it were, is putting the picture before us and saying to us, now look here, as you're looking at that, you see yourself. That's unbelief. That's what unbelief is always like. That's what unbelief always does. If you see it in them, don't you see it in yourself? In other words, we read about these Pharisees and scribes and doctors of the law. We see them scheming and plotting. We see their anger and vituperation. We see them inciting the common people to shout away with him, crucify him. We see them encompassing his death. And we feel how terrible, how awful, how could it have happened? And yet, you know, if you are not a Christian in the real sense of the term, well, that's just you. That's yourself. That is the simple truth about all who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and do not surrender themselves and the whole of their life to him. Very well. That is why we go on with this consideration of this extraordinary reaction of people to the Son of God. Now, here in these verses, 25 to 36, we are given another picture, a complete picture in and of itself. I can't hope to deal with it all this evening, but I'm going to pick out one aspect of the matter. Now, it begins, you remember, like this. After our Lord had been talking to the authorities, and after he had ended by saying, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Don't be superficial, he'd said. Don't jump to conclusions. But really face all the facts, and don't be content until you've got an answer that covers them all. Judge not according to the appearance. I may just look like a carpenter from Nazareth, but uh, you know other things about me. Have you taken it all into consideration? Don't dismiss me merely on appearance, as it were. Judge righteous judgment. Now, the effect of you saying that was that some of these uh, people of Jerusalem said, is not this he whom they seek to kill? They've been hearing, you see, that the the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees had been uh, working a plot together to kill him, to get rid of him. They say, "Isn't, isn't this he? And then they, as it were, answer themselves. They say, how be it? We know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. And our Lord, hearing this, lifted up his voice, it's translated here, cried. He was moved. He lifted up his voice and he said in the temple as he taught, you both know me and know whence I am? That's what it means. He says, do you? Do you know me? Do you really know whence I am? And then he answers them and says, I am not come of myself. But he that sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. But you see, the effect of that was simply this. Then they sought to take him, to arrest him, and to get him out of the way. Now, what a tragedy, I say. It is indeed still the tragedy of unbelief. And here we are given uh, some further insights into the nature of unbelief. We've already seen a number. Our Lord has been preaching directly. He's been putting it before them. But here now we see it worked out in this incident that takes place again in the temple. And all I want to do is to comment upon some of these further aspects of the nature of unbelief that are revealed here to us. Here's the first. You cannot but notice here the way in which unbelief makes dogmatic assertions which are entirely wrong and completely false. That's the first characteristic of unbelief that stands out in this particular incident. Unbelief makes dogmatic assertions which can be proved to be completely wrong and entirely false. Let me show you that. Here it is in verse 27. These people, who, because of what he's been saying and the way he's been handling the situation, say, well, this is a little bit puzzling, don't the authorities? Understand what's happening is not this he whom they seek to kill, but, lo, he speaketh boldly, and they they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? But then they answer themselves, how be it, they say, and here are the two statements which they make dogmatically which are entirely wrong. Howbeit they say, we know this man whence he is. We know this fellow and we know where he comes from. And then the second statement, but when the Messiah cometh, no man knoweth or will know whence he has come. Now then there I put it in the form of a statement, and the statement is... That there you have a dogmatic assertion concerning two things which are completely and entirely wrong and false. But notice first of all the dogmatic element. How be it, they say? We know! Don't you see the modern men there? Don't you see the typical unbeliever, non Christian there? Why is he not a Christian? Go and ask him. Go and ask the typical modern man who isn't a Christian. Say, why are you not a Christian? Well, he said, of course, by now we know. Same thing. Precisely the same attitude. The same dogmatism. The same absolute certainty. We know. By now, we know. So did these. Not uh, a tentative suggestion, not a kind of open-mindedness, but uh, sheer dogmatism. There's something almost laughable about this. Were it not so tragic, it would be very easily to, easy to ridicule it. But it is so tragically serious. Notice, I say, the complete confidence, the absolute certainty, the sheer dogmatism of these people. Here, I say, is ever the characteristic of unbelief. The phrase, of course, varies from time to time. We used to hear a great deal about the assured results of biblical criticism. We know. Ah, says the men. of course, people in the times past, they were Christians and everybody believed this sort of thing. But of course, they, they didn't know what we know. They hadn't our advantages. They hadn't our knowledge. They hadn't our scientific knowledge. They hadn't our philosophical knowledge. Of course, they say, by now, of course, we know. And they make their dogmatic pronouncements. There's no uncertainty about it at all. Those who are Christians are ridiculed. We are just regarded as being hopelessly behind the times. We are ignoramuses. They're astonished at us how we can still go on believing this old message in the light of all that is so certainly known. We know. I don't want to stop with this. But I would simply ask anyone who is in this congregation who is not a Christian to face that question. Isn't that the sort of thing you are saying? Aren't you confident and assured? Aren't you rather laughing at those who are Christians and amazed at them that they should still believe it? This is the great characteristic always of unbelief. It's confidence in itself and what it says. But let me demonstrate the other aspect. Though it speaks so dogmatically and confidently, what it says is completely and entirely wrong. Now then look at the two statements. The first is, "We," they say, we know this man whence he is. They said, we know this fellow, we know where he's come from. Well, what was that? Well, what they said was that he had come from Nazareth. And they said, this man cannot claim to, cannot be what he claims to be, because, they say, this man comes from Nazareth. They say it later on again. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Nazareth was in Galilee, and he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. And these people said with absolute confidence for this man to set himself up as a teacher and to say that he is the long-expected Messiah, of course, he's just sure nonsense. It's absolutely ridiculous. We know that this fellow comes from Nazareth. But the fact was, of course, that he'd never been born in Nazareth. He had come from Bethlehem. That is where he'd been born. They're talking about his birth, the place of his origin. Now then, they said, we know that he has come from Nazareth, but he hadn't come from Nazareth. They're wrong. What they say about him, as he goes on to show them, is entirely wrong. Completely false, though they make it as a dogmatic assertion. Then take the second point. The second thing they say is this, but when Christ the Messiah cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Here is again another dogmatic assertion, and a very astonishing one. They said, we can prove twice over that this man can't be what he claims to be. We know that he's come from Nazareth, and no Christ or Messiah is ever to come out of Galilee. Yes, but we also know this, that when the true Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's come from. And that again, of course, was a complete and entire falsehood. But that is what these people had been taught. It's a little bit of a mystery as to how they'd ever been taught such a thing, but they had been taught such a thing. And here they are laying it down with absolute dogmatism that when the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's come from. And it is a statement which is completely wrong and without any foundation whatsoever. Now then, I want to take up this point. Here, you see, is the position. Without any hesitation, without any qualifications at all, they say, We know. They're absolutely certain. And on the basis of their absolute certain knowledge, they reject it and dismiss it. Why do they do this? Why is it that men and women still dogmatically reject Christ and his salvation and this blessed gospel of the glorious God? That's the question. Well, let me give you the answers. The first is this. They do this sort of thing because they don't take the trouble to find out the facts. It is indeed, you know, as simple as that. The Lord Jesus Christ was popularly known as Jesus of Nazareth. And because he was popularly known as that, they accepted it. They took no trouble at all to find out what the real facts were about him. They never thought of asking him, for instance, tell us, though you've been living in Nazareth, where do you come from? Where's your origin? Where were you born? Where do you really belong? They never asked him. They take no trouble. But you see, they take uh, the popular phrase, Jesus of Nazareth, then on that they make a dogmatic assertion. They never take any trouble to find out the real facts and the essential truth. Now there, as I understand it, is the real source of trouble with this condition of unbelief always. I wonder how many people tonight are not Christians for the simple and only reason that they've never taken the trouble even to try to find out what Christianity is. You see, they're like these people depicted here in this paragraph. Instead of asking questions, they talk. They don't make an inquiry. They don't make an investigation. They say, what I say is this. And what are they talking about? Well, they're talking about their idea of Christianity. And because they don't like what they describe as Christianity, they reject it and they dismiss it, exactly as these people did. But in the whole time, they really are speaking without knowledge. They've never examined the question. They don't really know what Christianity claims to be. Let me put it quite simply like this. Here, you see, we are considering something that makes the claim that it is the word of God And that it can make a difference to our eternal destiny. And yet, how do people handle it? Well, I say what they do is they dismiss it. They start by dismissing it. They say things about it. They say Christianity is this, that, and the other. Christianity is just some kind of morality. Christianity is a sort of folklore, they say. And Christianity makes various proposals. But here is the material question, surely. I would ask this question of anybody who is not a Christian in this congregation. Do you really know what Christianity claims to be? Have you ever read the Bible? I don't mean have you read bits in the Bible. Have you ever read the whole Bible? Have you ever really read the New Testament right through? Do you really know what the Bible claims to be Christianity? Or are you just repeating some second-hand phrases, something you've heard somebody else saying, and are you waxing eloquent about that, what you think Christianity to be? Tell me, if I ask you to sit down and just to write out what Christianity is, what it claims for itself, what it proposes to do, how it proposes to do it, and so on, could you do that? Have you ever really taken the trouble to discover what it is? Or are you like the people depicted in this paragraph? Here they are, you see. They don't ask our Lord, tell us, where did you come from? Where were you born? Tell us your life's history. You know, we've been listening to you, and you've been saying extraordinary things. We heard you're expounding the Feast of Tabernacles just now. And indeed, it was marvelous. We don't quite follow it all. You seem to be only a carpenter from Nazareth, and yet you have a knowledge that we can't attribute to an ordinary and and, and, and uneducated person. Uh, Tell us now, what is the mystery of your person? Why... Tell us, explain it to us. Where have you come from? Are you only from Nazareth? Or is there some mystery? They never asked him. Never asked him at all. But they took the slogan and on it they condemned him. They never really examined the situation as it is. They never sought the information that he alone could give them. And I make bold to put the same question. Are you just in the position of saying that you don't like it, and that you don't believe in it, and that you have no use for it, and that you say that as long as a man does as well as he can in this world and lives a fairly good life, that all is well, and therefore you reject it. I'm asking, do you really know what it, what it really teaches, what it claims to be in and of itself? Have you gone through it all? Have you considered its momentous statements? Have you considered the facts concerning him? Have you read the explanations of it all in the book of Acts and in the various epistles, the mighty doctrines that have been drawn out of these facts? Have you faced them? Have you considered them? That's Christianity. What is your real notion of Christianity and what's it based upon? Where have you got it from? Have you got it from argument and disputation? Have you got it from the newspapers and the possi- and the popular articles which are always denouncing it? Or have you really gone to the source? Tell me further. Have you ever really read and considered the whole story of the Christian church? Do you really believe that Christianity can be dismissed as lightly as you were dismissing it? Do you know its record of marvels and mighty deeds? Do you realize that you're saying that some of the greatest minds and intellects the world has ever known have been wrong and have been fools? Do you know what happened at the Protestant Reformation and the benefits that have accrued to all nations under the heavens as the result of that? Can all that be dismissed? Do you know what this nation owes to religious revivals and the Christian message and the Christian gospel? Do you know what it means? Do you know the facts? Have you investigated? Doesn't it strike you as being rather foolish to be making dogmatic assertions which are based on nothing but ignorance? I ask you, my friend, before you go any further, face this question, have you really considered the case? These people never did. They never considered the facts about him, but they accepted the popular saying and dismissed it. That's one explanation. But then there is a second explanation, which is this. They did this because they believed the false teaching. Concerning him, simply because it had been taught dogmatically by the authorities. Now take this second point about the statement which they make to the effect that when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Now where do you think that that teaching had come from? Well, according to the authorities, the commentators, there seems to be only one satisfactory explanation, which is this. That the Jewish teachers had been so emphasizing the supernatural character of the Messiah that they had worked themselves into the conclusion that when he came, he'd be so marvelous and so wonderful that he'd suddenly appear as a spectacle and nobody'd know where he'd come from. That is the only possible explanation. Here are people saying, quite literally, that when the Messiah will come, nobody will know where he's come from. And yet you see how utterly ridiculous and monstrous that was. Because there in the Old Testament, in the book of the prophet Micah, in chapter 5 and verse 2, it is stated perfectly, plainly, and explicitly that he is going to be born in Bethlehem, Judah. There was the prophecy all those centuries before he was born, and thou Bethlehem, Ephrata, which which is the smallest of the cities of Judah, out of thee shall come. There it is, perfectly plain. The scriptures were quite specific about this. They prophesied what literally came to pass. And yet, you see, here are the common people saying, now they say, we know, it's absolutely certain, that when the Messiah comes, Nobody will know where he's come from. He'll be so marvelous, so divine a personage, that nobody will be able to say he was born here or born there. He just comes and appears before us. How did they ever come to believe such a thing? Well, I'm giving you the answer. You see, these clever rabbis, these teachers of the people, had been substituting for the plain teaching of the Bible their own reasonings, their own hypotheses, their own suppositions, and their own theories. And it had reached this point that their teaching was a blank contradiction of the plain teaching of the Scriptures. Now, here's a great principle, of course. Here is the key to the understanding, of course, of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember how in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, you keep on reading something like this. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you. What's it mean? It means this. Our Lord there is not contrasting his own teaching with the teaching of the law of Moses. What he's doing is to contrast his teaching and his understanding of the law of Moses with the false interpretations of the Pharisees and the scribes and the doctors of the law. Well, it was there in a phrase in that 15th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, which we read at the beginning. Our Lord rounded upon these people and said this. He said, you know, the trouble with you is this. You are teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You say you're scriptural, but you're denying the scripture. You are substituting your own theories for the plain teaching of the word of God. That's what he's saying at this point. He was constantly having to say to these people, you are teaching, he said, for doctrines. The commandments of men, and that is what has happened to these people. They say when Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's come from. What a lie! They said it dogmatically. They were absolutely certain about it. But it's false. It's a contradiction of the plain teaching of the Revelation. Well, now, of course, what we are concerned about and what we should be interested in is the way in which this very self-same thing still obtains amongst us. Men and women say, we know. We don't believe your gospel. Why? Well, because they say they know. But where do they find their knowledge? Where, Whence have they got it? And the answer is they've not got it from this book. They've got it from the teachings of men. They've got it from philosophy. Let me give you an example or two. Take, for instance, the teaching about God. They say we know that God, of course, is a God of love. And the idea that God could ever punish anybody, of course, is just sheer nonsense and is a contradiction of the whole notion of love. We know, they say, that God is like that. And that's why we don't like your evangelical preaching and your evangelical teaching. Indeed, we don't like the whole of your Christian faith. With all this about justification and all the necessity of the death of Christ, nonsense. We know that God isn't like that. Isn't that how they speak? Haven't you heard them saying it? Isn't that the thing on which they base the whole of their position? We know, they say, about God. And in exactly the same way, they claim to know about creation and the origin of the world. What is their knowledge based upon? Well, here again, as in the case of God, it is based upon nothing but the dogmatic assertions of men. Men claim that they know what God is like. In the same way, they claim that they know how this world came into being. They say, nonsense, we don't believe in this special creation. Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They say, of course, we know by now science has taught us. We know. What do we know? Well, we know about those two great planets that were there somewhere in that space. They don't know where the planets came from, but they start with them. And they say that one of them passed a little bit too near to the other and knocked a piece off it, and that became our cosmos. We know. Man, what is man? Well, we know that originally there was that primitive, undifferentiated slime, that mere mass of protoplasm. And we know that that began to develop and to be organized and went on and on and through the various stages until it eventually became man. We know. So we don't believe Genesis. We don't believe in creation. We know. Isn't this it? And then come to the doctrine of men himself. What is he? And again, we are told that they know. He's just a creature, you know, whose cerebrum happens to have been a little more highly organized and developed than that of most of the other animals. That's all. They don't believe that man is made in the image of God and is meant for God. No, no, they know that man is just a reasoning animal. They know it, they say. And sin, what is sin? Well, they say, we know too much to believe in sin. We are now able to say that what the Bible calls sin is nonsense. We are psychologists, and we can understand all this. We know the nature of man, his psychological makeup, and how he has his taboos and his fears and his phobias. It was called sin, but of course it's all nonsense. There's no such thing as sin. Man, they say, is not positively bad. What you mean is that he's not as good as he ought to be. It's something negative. We know. We know. And likewise, they reject the offer of salvation that is given in the gospel, because they say that they know that if a man only puts his back into it, and only exercises his willpower, he can pull himself up out of the gutter, and he can live a good and a straight and a clean and a moral and a pure life. And that if you only multiply your psychological agencies, you'll soon have your prisons empty. And all men will live according to the law. Give them more education. Give them more knowledge. You don't want a miraculous salvation. We know that with our techniques we can do it. We know, they say. Don't they say it? Isn't that why they reject Christianity? Isn't that why they reject this miraculous supernatural salvation? They say they know these things. And likewise, they say that they know that when a man dies, that's the end of him, that death is the end, that there's nothing beyond death. They say, of course, you're no longer going to be frightened by preachers who try to frighten you with the thought of hell. We know that when a man dies, that's the end. Hell, of course. There isn't such a thing to be contradictory of the love of God. We know that all that talk about the wrath of God upon sin and man in the condemnation, that it's all just rubbish, just typical of primitive people who in their ignorance, some were afraid of the sun and moon and stars, others pictured this great God beyond all, and they trembled before him and were afraid that he was going to punish them throughout all eternity. We, We know, they say. That there is neither hell nor eternal punishment. That there is no existence even after a man dies in this world. That is what men and women say, isn't it? That is why they're not Christians. That is why they don't believe this gospel. They know all these things they tell us. But isn't it about time that they paused and faced this simple question... How do you know all this? What is the basis of your knowledge? What is the authority behind it? What foundation has it got? Look at these men who made their dogmatic statements about him. Look at the dogmatic statement they said about the fact concerning the Messiah. And they were dead wrong in both instances. Yet they said it dogmatic. Why did they say it? They were simply repeating what their teachers and authorities were saying. They, you see, like the modern men, were slaves of the experts. And we all listen to the experts. People speak with authority on the wireless. They don't even apologize. They don't put it tentatively. They say, of course, by now, we know. What do they know? Do they know that man has evolved out of the primitive slime? Why not be honest and say that that's their theory, that that's their supposition, that that is their idea? Do they know it? Can they prove it? Can they establish it? Of course they can't. They say they know about God. But how do they know about God? Whence is their knowledge? Have they ascended into heaven? Have they examined God? What do they know about? It's dogmatic assertion. And the common people repeat it. They say, I read it in the newspaper." And therefore, they repeat it dogmatically. Nobody today, they say, believes such stuff. And so, they dismiss him, and they dismiss his teaching. Can't you see that the typical modern man in his unbelief and rejection of Christ and this salvation is simply repeating what these people did in the temple at Jerusalem with our blessed Lord so long ago. We know. In the name of God, I want to ask you a simple question. What do you really know? Wait a minute. What do you know? You say, we know. What do you know? Tell me. What do you really know about God? I'm not asking you what you think. I'm asking you what you know. You say you know. I'm asking you then, what do you know? What do you really know as to what's going to happen to you when you die? Oh, I know you've got your theories. I'm not interested in your theories. My dear friend, they're, they're so cheap, aren't they? Two a penny. I can give you theories. Buy the dozen about anything you like if you want it, but I'm not here to give you. My theories, I'm asking you, what do you know? Because you are going to die, and I am. And your theories and mine won't be of much help and of much value to us at that point. You see, we are not merely spectators. We are not simply sitting in a gallery and looking on at something happening to somebody. We are in this. We are in this world, and we're going out of it. And what's going to happen to us? What do you know? That's my question. What do you really know? Do you really know that there isn't punishment of sin? Do you really know that there isn't a hell? Oh, the tragedy of men and women making their dogmatic assertions merely because they're repeating the cliches of men who stand up in human self-confidence and merely give expression to their theories. That's what they did. So that brings me to my last word this evening, which is this. Unbelief is that which makes dogmatic assertions that can be proved to be completely wrong and false. We've seen why it does so, but the third and the last thing about unbelief is this, that while it is talking and laying down the law and saying, we know, It refuses to listen to him. Why should we listen to him, says someone? Well, I'll tell you why. Listen to what he says about himself. Listen to the claims that he makes. Nobody has ever ventured to make such statements in the whole history of the human race. They're absolutely unique. Here are you and I in this passing world. If we really have any knowledge, we ought to be very humble. The greater the man, the greater the man's knowledge, the more humble he is. We are in this baffling, contradictory world. We are getting older day by day. We know we've got to die. We are failing in even our management of ourselves. We are failing in the ordering of our world. Here we are. And we've been talking dogmatically what fools we are. I trust we've seen that. What's the next step? Well, let's go to him and listen to him. Let us decide to do what these people didn't do. They never asked him a question. They didn't listen to what he said. They just went on with their dogmatism and dismissed him and condemned him and plotted to put him to death. But oh, let's, having seen their folly objectively and having condemned ourselves for it, let's do the exact opposite. Let's go to him and listen to what he says. And this is what he says. Here is one who says that he knows God. This is how he puts it. You say, he says, that you both know me and you know whence I am. I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. But I know him. Here's the staggering claim. Here stands someone in this world who ventures to say, I know God. The everlasting, the infinite, the eternal God. I know God, says this person. Isn't that the one you've been waiting to meet? Isn't this the one to whom we should rush We've been trying to find him. With Job, we've said, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. We've tried to search out. The philosophers have tried, but the greatest have had to admit they can't get there. They don't know him. They've merely been seeking after him, if happily they may find him. Here is one who quietly says, I know him. And why does he say it? Well, he explains it. He says, he says that he has come from God. I, he says, am not of myself, and I have not come of myself. I am from him. Oh, that these foolish people had listened to what he was saying. He says the ultimate great thing about me is not whether I'm from Nazareth or Bethlehem or anywhere else. It's not I've come from him. I have come from God. This is his unique claim. Every other teaching confronting the human race this evening is from men. It's men trying to find God. It's men theorizing. It's men philosophizing. It's men standing on tiptoe, trying to find the truth about God, trying to raise himself up. Here is one who says, I am come from God. He's come from heaven. He's come from God's presence. He's come out of the bosom of the Father. He is the Son of the Father. I am come from God. That is what he claims. That is why you should listen to him. But more, he says this, not only does he know God and has come from God, he says, I have been sent by God. I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Who is this person? He knows God. He is come from God. Yes, and he's been sent into the world by God. God, he says, has sent me to you and into this world. Let us ask him, why has God sent you? Why have you come? And the answer he gives is this. God so loved the world that he gave. He sent you, if you like, into the world and to the death of the cross. Gave up to death his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. I am come, he keeps on saying. God hath sent me. The Son of Man came, what for well, to seek and to save that which was lost. Isn't that you? Isn't that me? He sent me, he says. What has he sent me for? He has sent me that I might do a work for his people. He has sent me to seek and to save that which was lost. He has sent me that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He has sent me to seek the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He has sent me to be the light of the world. He has sent me to be the Savior of the world. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me he sent me. Why has he sent me? Not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. That's what he teaches. Oh, that these people had listened to him. For what you see, he says is this, that he has come into this world to save us from our sins. He has come to bear our punishment in his own body on the cross. He has come to reconcile us to God. He has come to save us from the wrath to come and to make us children of God. He has told me. He's a messenger. He's an ambassador. He's been sent to do a work. And he says, I've come to do it. Listen. But they didn't listen. What else does he say? Well, he says that the time of his death is exactly determined. He said to these men who were plotting to arrest him, yet a little while am I with you. And then I go my way unto him that sent me. They were plotting to arrest him then. He knew they couldn't do it. As we've already been told, His time was not yet come. They thought they were going to take him then, but they couldn't. He knew that everything was determined by his father. As he didn't go up with his brothers to this feast of tabernacles at Jerusalem, but went up about halfway through the feast because he knew his time. He knows it still. He knows his death is determined. It's in the plan of God and it'll never happen a moment before the moment. It has been determined. He knows about his death. And he knows about his return to God. Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me, but shall not find me, and where I am thither you cannot come. Well, there are his claims. And you see, the choice for everybody in this world comes to this. Are you going to base your position on the dogmatic assertions of men who finally know nothing but simply turn their theories into facts utterly illegitimately? Or are you going to turn to and to listen to this blessed person who says, I know God and have been sent by him from his bosom into this world to give you life. Through bearing your sins and your punishment, through laying down my life for you, through being buried in your grave, rising again to justify you and to stand before God on your behalf as your advocate, I will send my Spirit upon you and give you new life and enable you to be more than conqueror. My friends, the choice, you see, just comes to that. Are you going on to pit your supposed knowledge against him and against his knowledge? Do you realize the utter folly of doing so? Are you going on to listen to these men who know nothing about God? who know nothing about man's true nature, who know nothing about death, who know nothing about what lies beyond the veil, are you going to risk your eternal future on their dogmatic pronouncements? And reject this blessed person who humbled himself and came from heaven to earth, and who speaks with a first-hand intimate knowledge of God as his father, Father, and was died that you might be made a child of God, are you going to risk your eternal and everlasting future and destiny, saying, I know, when in reality you know nothing and refuse the knowledge that is brought to you and offered you? By the Son of God Himself. Thou art the men. It isn't Pharisees and Scribes, this isn't doctors of the law and the people at Jerusalem, it's you. See it. Acknowledge it, confess it. Hurry to God and to Christ. Admitting and acknowledging the enormity of your arrogance and your ignorance. Ask him to have mercy upon you. Cast yourself like a child at his feet. And listen to him. And blessed be his name. What he will say to you is still this. In spite of all you may have said against him. In spite of all your blasphemy against him in your ignorance. If you only go to him, he will say, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Come, he'll say, my child, your eyes have been opened. The Spirit has given you illumination. You're right. Here I am. Believe on me. Give yourself to me. And he will whisper the blessed word forgiveness into your soul. And he'll give you with the knowledge that he has imparted unto you his own blessed life. Turn to him. Listen to him. Believe on him. Give yourself to him. Amen.